Welcome back to Thinking About It. I'm here with Dr. Dave Barker, a, a professor emeritus at Heritage, who uh, is a great blessing, lives down the street from our church. So Dave, uh, so glad that you could join us. I'm Bob McGregor, and this is Thinking About It. So Dave, uh, we chatted a little bit off camera or off mic about the subject of liturgy, liturgical worship. Mm-hmm. Um, not my tradition, not how I was raised. I don't think it's how you were raised. We come from a little bit of the fundamentalist background, maybe, <laughs> and uh, which is a different thing altogether. But more and more, we're seeing how the other side of Christian- Christianity um, is having a bit of a revival in liturgy. A lot of our people, our young people, are open or they're exploring liturgy and we're still figuring out what it is Mm -hmm. so let's just talk for a little bit about um, church liturgy what is it Uh, why is it appealing to people can you still be an evangelical baptist and be liturgical is that a thing so what are your thoughts on that dave well um i've been thinking about this for a while and um i used to teach a course at uh Heritage uh, College and Seminary on the church and worship, and one of the first people that I read uh, on that whole domain was, of course, Robert Weber, and right from back in the 1980s, he wrote um, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail and recorded his own journey from a fundamentalist church into into an Episcopal church, Um, and there's, there's been quite a bit um, written in recent days. Um, Todd Hunter uh, wrote a book, uh, Accidental Anglican, the Surprising Appeal of the Liturgical Church. Uh, Winfield Bevins, Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation. And it was interesting. Um, I'm a regular reader of, of uh, Christianity Today, and Mark Galley uh, put in a couple, had a, a couple of essays in there. Mm-hmm. And I think actually he himself has made this similar kind of pilgrimage. So it, it is something that's real. It's something that's uh, out there. Your question was, uh, can, you, can you be in the world of evangelicalism and, um, and also in the world of, of, of the liturgical church or a bit more of a stress on liturgy? And the answer, I think, is unequivocally yes, for sure. Um, especially when we begin to think about what actually is involved Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, the liturgical calendar, liturgy within the church, uh, and that kind of thing. And I don't think there's anything unbiblical about any of that. I used to hear my friends talk about going to Catholic churches, liturgical churches. They say, I don't know if I'm standing up or sitting down. They cross over. I don't know. I don't have a road map. And I always used to say, well, I'm glad I'm not that. Right? But But now I'm wondering, maybe there's something to that, because people who were part of that tradition kept coming back and so what what's the disconnect there well um it's interesting because uh in the summers uh when we're up at uh up at our family cottage uh my wife and i um occasionally attend an anglican church in a in a town nearby and it's because uh a neighbor of ours uh three or four cottages down for us attends there and they're solid believers, and uh, but they would invite us to their uh, little Anglican church, and we would attend. 
and we've been there three or four times. I think we're considered members now because we we've attended a few times. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Yeah, uh, there were. T yeah, I got lost um, in terms of where we were in the liturgy and uh, whether you're supposed to stand or sit or whether we're reading the creed, whether we're doing the confession. But you uh, liked the it. People. I think I, you, I loved it. Why did you like it? It it gave me a sense. There was a sense of reverence that I hadn't felt in a while. Um, I loved reading and quoting the, the creeds and affirming the theological statements that were there. One of the things that I really enjoyed was um, the, the time of confession where the congregation would express their sorriness for sin, sinfulness. And I didn't sense that sometimes we accuse that as we said that, well, you know, it's just a congregational thing. Don't really mean it. Well, I certainly meant it, mm -hmm. and I had no doubt that the my friend sitting beside me meant it. And to express public confession of sin, well, has anybody read Psalm 51? Mm -hmm. um, well, it comes from David and his, mm -hmm. his struggle with Bathsheba. It was a public expression of sin that that psalm became part of the voice of Israel and the church in a public expression of sin kind of way. Is, is confession of sin an integral part of a liturgical church? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's one of the pieces that you flow through. Then there's prayers of the people, and, of course, the reading of the creeds. Eucharist is always uh, part of that as well. What do you say to people who say, well, that's between me and God. Uh, I don't have a priest. I don't confess to a priest. And... I'll just deal with that private. And there are others who say, I don't really have sin. My sin has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus. Oh I come to church not to deal with my sin, but to be encouraged and lifted up. What, and you know the types, that sure. theology that I'm talking sure. well, about. Well, I think 1 John 1, 1.9 still exists, and I still think it exists for the prayer of a believer, even after they've been redeemed and, and justified in Christ. Um, yes, I think there needs to be personal confession of sin for sure. But, to hear the congregation as a congregation recognize that they come before God as sinful people that need the grace and mercy and gift of grace in, in, in their lives, I think is a, is a profitable and helpful event and experience. Now, could that be something that is uh, written by a pastor or is there, are there standard pieces in the liturgy that deal with that? It comes out of the prayer book. It comes out of the Anakin prayer book. Although I think, um, as a couple times I was there, there was some differences uh, in the different occasions. So whether the pastor had uh, rewritten it a little bit, because it was in a, we had read it off a kind of a church bulletin kind of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So there was, it wasn't just the same every time I went. Um, so, but obviously those who are in the, in the more liturgical churches would be able to answer that question yeah. better than I you, can. You know the question that comes up, we're spirit-led, right? And quite often what that means is we're unorganized or we just kind of wing it in, in the evangelical church. And uh, the, the best times in church are when the pastor says, I don't know what I'm going to speak on today. I'm just listening to the Lord. And you, you interrupt what little schedule or liturgy you have, so-called because the spirit didn't think of it earlier. Um, so, so, but, but you hear that a lot, you know, we just want to be free. We don't want to be, be, um, restricted to, a, an order of service that the spirit of God can't speak into. Um, my experiences in those situations are usually disasters and, uh, they go off the rails pretty quickly. 
um, and I'm very committed to the notion that the Spirit of God is active, even when the pre-planning of whatever we're doing, uh, whatever we're doing, is happening. And mm-hmm. it's just he's, the Spirit of God is just as active at that moment uh, as at any other time. So why why do you think uh, people in a healthy evangelical church would be drawn to um, an evangelical liturgical church? Not because the preaching is necessarily better, but sub- simply because there is um, the liturgy as we've been describing it. Well, um, in some of the reading I've been doing, and uh, I, I did, um, I, I've re- of course, I've read um, uh, Robert Weber's. I just finished reading uh, Winfield Bevins. And you gave that to me, and I read it too, and we're going to study it a little more in depth here at Grandview. Oh, Thank good. you for that. You okay. Know. Well, um, as I've thought about it and read some of the, some of the stuff, a couple things that come to mind. Uh, first of all, uh, and this is coming a little bit from my reading, um, and I've jotted a few things down here. There's a growing rejection of our modern times value of newness. There's uh, some very younger adults uh, want to be part of a tradition that goes beyond their own lifetime and generation. And while there is a value of scripture and the priority of scripture, there's also a value of tradition and history as a guide to faith. And I think that's one of the things that's influencing uh, how some of our, especially our young adults are thinking. Another thing, liturgy allows a full expression of a spiritual life. And I guess I'm reflecting on praise and worship music is part of that and is a core idea in evangelical worship and gathering. But there's little room in our evangelical services for lament or penitence. And the liturgy allows for both of those. Um, and those, those are key parts of the human experience. Um, there's a seriousness of participation in the sacred acts and forms of worship. Um, public reading of scripture, responsive readings of scripture, yes, kneeling and standing. But I found those moments of kneeling to be really special. And yeah, there were times I was lost. I didn't know whether I was supposed to stand or sit. But Everybody around me knew, and I know that if I had attended there more regularly, mm-hmm. I'd figured it out mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So um, the prayers of the people. Um, so there was this, and then the Eucharist. And we went forward to take the Eucharist, and they called it Eucharist, which is, by the way, what I like, because mm-hmm. it's Eucharistic, the giving of thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a meaningful experience to go forward, receive uh, the bread and the cup, um, and they do it every week. Those are special moments for me. Um, and then, and we've talked about more about the liturgy within the church, but then there's this renewed uh, value of the, of the calendar that shaped the life of the church uh, as we move through the various stages and times of, uh, of the church year. Mm-hmm. So when you say about uh, lament, I mean, just, Imagine you come to church today, you didn't know, but you find out today is a lament day, and I'm in a good mood. So how awkward is it to say, well, get into a lament mood? No, it, we'll help it, you. Isn't, it isn't a lament day. It isn't a lament mood for mm-hmm. one service. There is an aspect of the service that says there are some folks here who are struggling because they've had losses this mm-hmm. week. Let's take a moment in this service mm-hmm. 
to pray for those folks or have a moment of quiet meditation or that kind of thing. It's not a lament day. It's, mm-hmm. it's a part of the service that may be three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And the same way with the prayers of confession, right? It's not a confession day. It's a moment in the service where in the prayers of the people or in a public expression of, 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 of confession, it's just part of the flow of yeah. the service that blends in with everything else that's going on. Okay, when you, I mean, you just got three minutes left, but when you say um, people are tired of the new, right, are you talking architecture or you're not talking theology, are you? Or no, obviously not talking what's, theology. What's new that, yeah, that um, isn't, that's bad? Or it's, there's a, it, it's interesting because um, Bevan's talked about the fact that uh, when some of, some of our young adults, when they pray and pray a prayer, and it's a prayer that comes from the prayer book or, or whatever, whether it's the pastor praying it or the congregation is praying it, they know that that same prayer, almost word for word, of course, if it's in English, because it's around the world mm-hmm. in multiple mm-hmm. languages, is being pr- prayed worldwide. Mm-hmm. And there's a deep connection mm-hmm. to the broader body of Christ that isn't just at that moment, at that time, in that location. Yeah. And there's this, this connection with the broader reality of what the Christian church and the mission of Christ Past is all about. Past and present. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, it's interesting because we talk about the young adults that are leaving the church. And we've heard a lot about that. And, of course, the ESC has talked to us about it. The Pew Research has talked about it. But it's interesting. When they're coming back, they're not coming back into our churches. Mm-hmm. They're coming back into these kinds of churches, liturgical churches, because they're looking for that, or they're coming into coming back into churches that are almost not church, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. kind of where Nexus is, where where Brad mm-hmm. is is serving. It's interesting; they're not coming back into our churches so much. Now, are they going to liturgical churches? Because by and large, um, a lot of the liturgical churches aren't as theologically precise, right? Is is that something that they're reacting against? There's a little more. Uh, kindness, a gracious orthodoxy, would that be a big part of the draw, or is that we're I, out of time? That may very well be. Uh, I like your phrase, gracious orthodoxy. Um, I, would, I would not want to necessarily conclude that every liturgical church is not orthodox mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you know, doesn't stand with Scripture. But perhaps because there is this broader sense of connection with the world, with the mm-hmm. world Christian church in, in, in the correct way of saying that or thinking about that, that, yeah, there might be a yeah. sense of a gracious orthodoxy. Just one more thing, and we are out of time. Just go another minute longer. When we think about architecture, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, every church wants to modernize and put new theater seating and that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, how important is it that we pay attention to that? And then you think of these old buildings that are for sale. You know, is this an opportunity to go in and just leave them alone and just kind of allow that architecture to inform the worship? I mean, how how does this liturgical uh, impulse affect architecture? I think it's huge. And you walk into the, some of these old grand churches, uh, even something like Benton Street, mm, even mm-hmm. though, you know, it's... With the stained glass windows, it isn't your cathedral, but there is a sense of architecture that they took seriously when they built that church. Now, the the problem is, when you see these old churches, and (laughs) 
the issue is that it's going to take millions and millions and millions of dollars to restore them or even to maintain them. And they become highly inefficient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we just don't have the funds to be able to do that. But there's something about walking into a Benton Street Baptist Church or a cathedral mm -hmm. that just because of the arches, the, yeah. the stained glass, it does something to put you in a space that is different than the normative space that we live in on our, on our, in our daily lives. Yeah. Wow. Well, Dave, thanks for bringing this up. Uh, Lord willing, it will uh, bring about some more conversations. And who knows, our fellowship might be a little bit different because of the things we're talking about. Thanks for listening to us here on Thinking About It. Until next time, I'm Bob McGregor. And I'm Dave Parker. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.